This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg In the previous chapters, Al-Turebi explained the paradox that Hashem desired for whatever reason, Hashem desired to have a dwelling place for himself in this world, in this material, physical world. He wanted his infinite self, his infinite light to be revealed in this world. Although the world that we live in, this, our world, this materialistic world, is a spiritually dark world, a place where godliness is concealed, Unlike all the other realms, all the higher worlds which reveal godliness, this world is a world of concealment. The very word olam in Hebrew for word for world olam comes from the root word helem, which means hidden. Godliness is hidden, is concealed. So this world, which is defined by ego, by as a healthy sense of self, is the antithesis of the, of the spiritual world. It's a very spiritually dark world antithesis of godliness, of wholesomeness. And strangely, this is where God wanted to reveal Himself. He wanted us to reveal godliness in this world. And it's, a, it's ironic that our world, which is spiritually a very shattered, a very broken world, and yet... It's in this world that we find the ultimate wholeness, the ultimate um, essence of wholeness and completion. And we, ironically, we find that only in this world. Where everything seems to be shattered and broken, and yet you discover that the essence is actually whole. The essence is actually good. You know, we come to take this shatteredness or this brokenness for granted, that this is the natural state of the world. This is a very spiritually broken world and fragmented world. And, and people are, appear to be naturally out of touch with their, with their spirituality, with their godly selves. It appears to be that you must compromise on your principles in order to live, to go through life. And you have to give up on your on your, on your childlike innocence to go through life. And you become very jaded and cynical, and it's very difficult. And it's, it's difficult to remember that in the midst of all of this, our essential nature is really godly. That it's really the most natural thing in the world for us at every moment to be whole and complete. And when we're not whole and complete, that is actually 
a, an alienation, an exile from our true state of being. It is so far from the truth. This sense of brokenness and the sense of shatteredness and the sense of that loss of innocence and that loss of purity, which seems to be our birthright in this, in this world, is so far from the truth. There could be nothing further than the truth. The truth is that it's so easy for us, it's so natural for us, at any moment, wherever we are, whoever we are, at any moment in our life, it's the most natural thing in the world for us, to be completely whole. And if we're not whole, it's only because we're so distant, we're so, we're so far from our true nature. And that is why the Jewish concept of teshuva, the Jewish idea of teshuva, Teshuvah doesn't translate into repentance. It's not a good translation. The literal word of the word, the meaning of the word Teshuvah means to return. To return to your true nature. To return to your, your true essence. Because to return doesn't, you don't have to re, be reborn again. You don't have to change. How far is east from west? How far do you have to go from east to west? <laughs> you don't have to go anywhere. You just turn around. You just turn around and you're facing west. You just have to turn around and reveal what's really going on. What's really going on deep down inside is the exact opposite of what it appears to be. It appears to be that, that by nature, we're coarse by nature, we're egotistical by nature, we're fragmented by nature. But the truth is, by nature, our essential nature is truly God. And that's why we feel so shattered and broken. It's precisely because we know that deep down something, something is out of place. It's like when you see a painting, and you see the painting is crooked. There's no way in the world you, you, that you're going to make the painting even more crooked. Why do you see the painting is crooked? Why does it bother you when you see the painting is crooked? Because you know the way things should be. If you would have no sense of the way things should be, you wouldn't have a sense that things are crooked. It wouldn't bother you. So it just, on the contrary, it tells you that essentially you have a very clear picture, a crystal clear picture of the way things should be. And when things are not that way, you feel very troubled, you feel very bothered. And something feels out of place. So the fact that, that we feel so broken and shattered and things seem out of place, on the contrary... Instead of losing hope, on the contrary, that tells you that essentially, our essential nature, our core nature, is perfect. Why? Because the essence of this world is created by the essence of God. God is perfect. So we have a, a perfect sense of right, of the way things should be, the way things could be, the way things ought to be. And when things are not that way, it bothers us to no end. And we feel something is not right. But we get so caught up that after a while we become cynical and jaded and we believe this is the way life is. It's the only way life is. Life must, you have to compromise on your principles. You have to compromise on your convictions. You can't go through life maintaining that childlike innocence, that wholesomeness. But that's because we get caught up in the lie. Nothing could be further than the truth. On the contrary, that's only a measure of how far we are from the truth. 
that core truth, all you have to do is turn around inside and reconnect with, that, with your essence. And you realize that the essence of this world is perfect and whole. And that's what the Baltruva experiences, the Baltruva. Someone whose life has been shattered and has been broken. And suddenly they discover that what's going on inside is the exact opposite way it appears to be. There's a wholeness there. Who would believe that in this milieu, in this broken, shattered milieu, you're going to find such wholeness, such perfection? The essence of God. And where do we find the ultimate miracle of creation? Only in this world. In this broken, shattered, material, fragmented, coarse, seemingly ungodly world, we find the greatest, the most godly phenomenon of all. The miracle of birth, the miracle of creation. The ability to create something that, that goes on forever. Something that will outlive us and go on for, for all eternity. This is the ultimate revelation of God. In heaven, they don't have the ability to give birth. Where do we have the ability to give birth? Where do we have the ability to become partners with God in the creation? In the ultimate revelation of the God's infinite self, only in this world, in this coarse materialistic world. So it's how, I, it's how ironic that in this material world, this is where the essence of God is found. This is where the ultimate perfection is found. This is where the ultimate wholeness is found. This is where the very essence of God is found. It's completely counterintuitive. You would never, if you meditated for a thousand years, you would never guess in a million years the possibilities, how this world is so ripe, how this world is so ripe for godliness, is so ripe for, for, the, for the ultimate, the absolute ultimate truth, the absolute essence of God, could only be fully revealed in this material world. And this is the whole emphasis of Judaism, that God desired to have a dwelling place in this world. In this chapter we're going to learn, how do we make this dwelling place? That we are, are the ones who actually make it happen. We are the ones who actually create this dwelling place in this world. Through our actions. Okay, so we are on page 483. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe explained that the statement of the sages that Hashem desired an abode in the lower realms refers to our physical world. This is the lowest of worlds in terms of the degree of revelation of the divine creative power. It is hidden in this world as it is in no other world. Hashem desired precisely this world, pervaded as it is with doubled and redoubled darkness, as his abode, where his presence would ultimately be revealed to a greater degree than it is revealed in the higher worlds, without any concealing garments whatever. This will come to pass in the Messianic era, the period for which the world was originally created, when godliness will be manifest throughout the world so that all the nations on earth will experience divine revelation. Now this ultimate perfection of the Masonic era and the time of the resurrection of the dead, meaning the revelation of Ein Sof life in this physical world, is dependent on our actions and divine service throughout the period of exile, unlike the aforementioned revelation at Sinai, which was initiated by Hashem. For it is the mitzvah itself that causes, creates the work reward. 
The Rarish Lita notes, unlike, for example, the wages paid by the owner of a field to the laborer who plows and plants in it, where the laborer does not create the money he is paid, a mitzvah actually creates its own reward. So we are the ones who actually create the world of Mashiach. We are the ones who actually prepare the world through the mitzvah, through studying Torah, through doing the mitzvah, we actually draw down God's infinite light and we bring godliness into this world. Now, the question is, he says that we are the ones who create Mashiach, we create the Messianic era, we are the ones who cause the Messianic era, through our efforts. But he says, specifically through the period of exile. question is, why through the period of exile? We've been studying Torah, we've been studying Torah, doing mitzvot for the past 3,320, 20 years. From Mount Sinai. So why specifically during the time of exile? And the explanation is that it says in the Torah that in the relation of husband and wife, if the husband is aroused before the wife, then they will give birth to a baby girl. But if the wife is aroused before the husband, they will give birth to a baby boy. That's what the Torah says. And the question is, why? (laughs) Where's the logic? Why she brings the baby boy and he brings the baby girl? Like it says in the Torah, the sons of um, it says the sons of Leah, Dina, the daughter of Yaakov, and it says the sons of Leah. So Dina, the daughter, is attributed to the father, and the sons, the tribes, are attributed to the mother. Why? Why? Where's the logic? And the Alter Rebbe explains elsewhere because. A husband and wife are a metaphor for the ultimate marriage, which is the marriage of the Jewish people and God. God chose the Jewish people to be his bride. God is the groom. And at Mount Sinai, God married us. All the laws of the chuppah we learned from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was the chuppah. The fire, you have the lights, the candles at the wedding. Because Mount Sinai, you had the fire, the lightning. And uh, the chuppah, Mount Sinai itself was like a chuppah. The Ten Commandments were the Ketubah. So this was the marriage between the Jewish people and God. Mount Sinai wasn't just a bunch of rules and laws. It was more than just a constitution. It was a marriage. So you have two types of arousals. You have an arousal that comes from above. When God inspires us. Sometimes it comes out of the blue without preparation. You wake up and you're all inspired. It's like a moment of grace. You're walking down the street without any preparation and suddenly you just feel inspired. There's some days that you just feel inspired. Some days you just feel dull. Your heart is clogged. You're you're completely uninspired. You push yourself. You discipline yourself and and you're going through the motions. Your heart is not into it. Your mind is not into it. And then you have certain days like grace. Your mind is clear. Your heart is open. Your soul is on fire. You can't explain it. You just receive it. You welcome the gift. 
and uh, you appreciate the gift. So this is an arousal that comes from above. But then you have an arousal that comes from below. When you inspire yourself through effort, you roll up your sleeve, you exert yourself, you think hard, you work on your personality and your character, you work on inspiring yourself. And the difference between the two is an arousal that comes from above. It doesn't last. It's an inspiration. It's a grace. It comes from God. And then easy come, easy goes. It vanishes and disappears very quickly. That moment of grace, that window just suddenly closes shut as if it never happened. You're unchanged. You're the same way you were before. While if you work on yourself through your own effort, then you create something that lasts. And that's metaphorically what he means, the difference between the, if you give birth to a baby girl or give birth to a baby boy, is that the, the girl, the feminine energy is constant flux, constant change. It wax and wanes, it's constant change. A woman experiences change, her whole being is change. Every month he experiences change. While the masculine energy represents something that never changes. Sometimes to our frustration, <laughs> to our wife's frustrations, but, but an unchanging energy. Just, and what that means in this sense is that you create something that, 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 that doesn't change, it lasts, versus if you create something that's, that's constantly in flux and constantly changing. So what it means is that God gave his ability. Who did God give his ability to create? God gave his ability to create. He gave it to the woman. Only God has the ability to create. Who did he give that ability to create? To the woman. The man has a small, small part in it, but it's the woman who has the ability to create. And therefore, she has the ability to create and to give birth to that masculine energy. That energy that endures. And, and what that means, on a spiritual level, what that means is that, as we learned earlier, King Solomon says, I have seen the superiority of light over darkness. God created the world of darkness. The setting that we live in is dark, darkness, spiritual darkness. And it's the light that comes out of the darkness that's superior than the light that comes without any darkness. The light, when we bring godliness and we shine a godly light in this material world, the light is much greater, superior, and more intense than the light that illuminates the heavenly worlds or the heavenly realms or the spiritual realms or the higher levels. And you have different levels of this superiority. Where do you see the superiority of light over darkness? The fact that light is able to vanquish the darkness. That light is able to overcome the darkness. A little light dispels a lot of darkness. You can be in a huge tunnel. It's pitch black. You light one little match and you can see the whole tunnel. And the darkness doesn't even offer any resistance. It just melts away. So the fact that this little match could overcome the darkness tells you that the, the light is the essence. Darkness is just a void. So you have a whole a new appreciation for light. When all you have is light, you don't appreciate the light. 
But when you're lost in the forest and it's pitch black and you hear wild animals howling in the background, that little match, you're so appreciative of that little light. So it's only in this milieu, in this world, when the soul, which is divine and godly, comes into this world, into the human form, in the human body, and we have to deal with human experiences. <clears throat> and the godly soul is, is obstructed, is blocked. And yet we're able to light the fire. We're able to light a match. We're able to study a little Torah and do a mitzvah and pray to God and do an act of kindness. We're able to light a match in this, in this dark forest. We have wild animals howling. Where people think that this world is a jungle and they behave that way. And yet you're able to act decently and do the right thing. It's like lighting a match. You appreciate the light. You see the superiority of light over darkness. But that's on a very superficial level. What King Solomon means, King Solomon has something much deeper in mind when he says that the superiority of light over darkness. Because it's not enough that light vanquishes the darkness. The light wants to transform the darkness. How do you transform darkness? How do you transform darkness into light? And what that means on a personal level, we have the light within us, which is the godly soul, and we have the darkness, the natural soul, the ego. And there's a conflict. There's a conflict. There's strife. There's tension. There's constant tension between our godly soul and our, our natural soul, our ego soul. And the godly soul has the ability to overcome the challenges of the ego soul and do the right thing. You're able to light a match and do the right thing. But the godly soul is much more ambitious than that. The godly soul doesn't just want to defeat the darkness. The godly soul wants to transform the darkness wants the, your animal soul also to love God. He wants to transform you. That your natural self, that you should harness that natural energy and you should come to appreciate and to love God. As much as you're attracted towards materialistic things and indulgence and instant gratification, the godly soul wants to educate you and teach you to be attracted to godly things. How do you reach the animal soul? How do you reach your ego? How do you get the ego to love godly things? The ego is coarse. The ego loves material things, instant, instant gratification, indulgence. The ego, that thrill-seeking part within you, the hot-blooded, passionate-blooded, the hot-seeking part, the hot-blooded part within you, you're not attracted to godliness, you're attracted to material things. How do you get that part within you to love godliness? As we say in the Shema, you should love God with all your heart, with both of your hearts. It's not enough that your godly soul loves God. You also want your ego to look. You want to transform the darkness to light. How do you get the ego to love God? And the answer is, because you go to, to, to the root. What is the root of the ego? What is the root of the animal soul? The root of the animal soul is not negative. The, rule of the, the root of the animal soul is, it's a thrill-seeking it's like an animal. An animal just wants to have fun. What is the animal looking for? Looking for energy, passion, life. Once the animal realizes, where are you, where are you going to find passion? Where, where are you going to find life? Only in the source of life. 
anything that's connected to the source of life is alive. The more connected you are to the source of life, the more passionate you are, the more alive you are, the more energy there is. So once you realize, what am I really looking for in life? It's not materialism per se that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the passion, the life, the vitality, the energy. Where are you going to find energy? The more connected you are to God, the more connected you are to godliness, the more Torah you study, the more good deeds you do, the more alive you feel, the more, the more energized you are, the more wholesome you feel. So once the animal soul realizes it, the animal soul can't realize it on its own. The animal needs to be trained. It's like the horse. You leave a horse on its own, to, to its own devices, the horse is the wild animal. But you, you train the horse. And you discipline the horse. You know, when you ride the horse, you have to make sure the horse doesn't stop. If the horse had its way, it would stop every stop and eat, eat whatever it sees. You have to discipline the horse not to be a horse. <laughs> and then you can really go places. So the mission, our mission in life, the mission of the godly soul is to ride the animal soul. To ride, take this beastly energy, this powerful, mighty energy, not to suppress it, not to ignore it, not to become some otherworldly, godly being and suppress your animal soul. But to harness that energy, to educate the animal, ride the animal, discipline the animal, and show the animal, what do you want? You want what are you all about? Let's not talk about me now. Let's talk about you. What are you all about? What do you want in life? What are you looking for? You want energy. You want to have fun. You want to have excitement. You want to have thrill. You want to have entertainment. You want to have a good time. You know where you're going to find a good time? Come to show. Now there you'll have a good time. The more connected you are with Hashem, the more alive you feel. Look at the Jewish people. We're the mighty Romans and the mighty Greeks. All gone, disappeared. Yet the Jew never left the front pages of history. The more connected you are to Hashem, the more alive you are. The more vital you are, the more alive you are, the more wholesome you are. Otherwise, you just become cynical and jaded and everything becomes superficial and just, it just loses its appeal. It just loses its, its, its energy. While if you look, a Jew who's connected to godliness, who's studying Torah and doing mitzvah, there's a wholesomeness, there's an innocence. You look in the eyes, there's an innocence, there's a purity, there's, there's a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, there's a sense of life. You're coming from somewhere, you're going somewhere, there's a connection, there's a meaning to life. You're alive. Not just your soul is alive. Your body is alive. You're a whole person. You're a real person alive. And this is what's very attractive. The animal soul finds it very attractive. The animal soul sees this life, this passion, this joy, this excitement, this joie de vivre. He says, I don't see this anywhere in the world. I've been to Las Vegas and I've been all over the world. I don't see this. This energy, this passion, this life, the only place you're going to find it. Where are you going to find Jews dancing like on Simchas Torah? Wholeheartedly, with every fiber of their being, every bone in their body. Where do you find such energy? Where do you find such excitement? You don't find it. Where do you find the real thing? The more connected you are to godliness, the more alive you will feel. This is appealing to the animal soul. The ego is interested. The ego is hooked. That's how you start educating the animal soul. That's how you transform the darkness into light. So this is a much deeper idea of what Shlomo Melech meant, King Solomon, the wisest of all men said. That the superiority of light over darkness. It's not just that you appreciate light when you are... When you have darkness, it's a different light. When you're able to transform the darkness into light, it's a different light. It's a different energy. 
It's a very intense energy, a very powerful energy, a very dynamic energy. But then there's even a deeper level. And that's what he's discussing here, what we've learned in the last two chapters. And that's why he says that it's the Torah mitzvah that we do in the time of exile, in the time of darkness, versus the Torah mitzvah that we do in the times when we had the temple, when there was no darkness. It's specifically the Torah mitzvah that we do in times of darkness that really bring out the essence of God. Because even the second level is also very limited because you're not really reaching the animal soul per se. You're reaching the sublime part of the animal soul. The part of the animal soul that's looking for life, the root, the source of the animal soul. That part of the animal soul that could be transformed into light, that's a vessel, a vehicle that could appreciate, that could learn to appreciate godliness and spirituality. But the very core and essence of the animal soul the darkness itself cannot be transformed into light. But this is where you see what a Jew is all about. A Jew has the creative ability. God gave the Jew, who is the bride, God gave the woman, which in this case represents the Jewish people, God gave us the ability to create. To create, make the ultimate creative act, which is to take darkness and to transform darkness into light. To take darkness, which is not a vehicle and not a a vessel for godliness, and to be able to transform that darkness into light. It's a divine ability to create something from nothing. How can you take this darkness, this material, you have nothing to work with here, pure darkness, coarseness, grossness. And you're able to take this coarse, gross material, this world which is coarse and gross, which is the antithesis of godliness. Every point in this world screams I, ego, the antithesis of godliness. There is no source, there is no God, there is no purpose, there is no point. Live for the moment, enjoy the moment. I am God, I decide what's right and wrong. Complete nihilism, complete pointlessness. To be able to take this material, which is not even a, ve- a vessel, it's not even a vehicle for God, it doesn't even have the potential to be redeemed, it doesn't even have the potential for God. To be able to take this material and to transform it into a dwelling place for God, to transform it into a place where God says, I feel at home, this is a creative act. It's, it's doing the impossible. And this is precisely how, what God empowered the Jewish people. At Sinai, God empowered us to, to do, uh, pull off the ultimate creative act, to transform darkness into light. Darkness itself, that's not even a vessel or a vehicle, doesn't even have the potential of, of godliness, of holiness, of spirituality, of refinement, to be able to take this darkness and to transform it into light. Where do you see this creative ability? Only in the time, only in exile. Exile is a time in Jewish history, in world history, when godliness is completely concealed. Like the time period we're living through right now, this moment. It's an oppressively, spiritually oppressive dark time. 
when you have the Prime Minister of Israel getting up, or soon to be the ex-Prime Minister of Israel, and saying that the Jewish people must give up its capital, must give up, relinquish the West Bank, our history, the cradle of our country. No Prime Minister in Israel has ever said that. We have to go back to the 1967 borders. After he's been humiliated and disgraced, instead of feeling humiliated and disgraced, he uses a national opportunity to get up and say that Jewish people have to go back to the indefensible, to the Auschwitz borders, as Abi Ibn called them. I mean, this is, this is spiritually, it's so spiritually oppressive when a Jew has so little pride, is so alienated from himself, from his own Jewishness, from his own Torah, his own God, his own people, his own history, his own destiny, is so out of touch. And to use a public platform to get up and to deny our history and deny our Torah and deny everything that we believe in and talk about exiling ourselves, this is spiritually oppressive. This is a darkness. This is the darkest moment in Jewish history. It's an inner exile. It's a spiritual exile. Because not only is no one holding a gun to our head, we live in a world today, if the Jew only had a little chutzpah, when you need it. Where's Jewish chutzpah when you need it? If a Jew only had a little guts, a little courage to stand for his convictions and stand for his beliefs and speak the truth, that Israel belongs to the Jewish people and belongs to every Jew that ever lived. And we don't have the right, and with all due respect, our dear Israeli brothers don't have the right. It doesn't belong to them, it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to every Jew that ever lived, it belongs to every Jew that has lived and will ever live. We are just caretakers. And if Jews got up and said, listen, there's nothing to negotiate, there's nothing to discuss. This is our eternal capital. Israel belongs to the Jewish people. God gave it to us. It's not ours to discuss. It will be theft for us to give up something that doesn't belong to us. And that's the end of the story. What do you think is going to happen? Nothing. The New York Times will write a few editorials. They're very upset and they won't like us. Okay, so it's mutual. And what else? Nothing is going to happen. The sky won't come falling down. We created this... this this fear in our own minds. We created this month now. We're so terrified. What's the world going to say? We're going to be unpopular. <laughs> we're going to be unpopular. Uh, we notice how popular we are now. <laughs> now that we're giving up everything, we notice how popular we are. On the contrary, if you stuck to your guns and you stuck to what you believe in, you stuck to the truth, then, but, who, but that's, you have to do what's right. We live in a different world today. There's such a respect today for Jews. And we saw it. We discussed it the other week. We saw it. This Rosh Hashanah. The most amazing thing. If you think about it. It's just the most amazing thing. The country had the worst crisis in a hundred years. The Senate refused to pass the $700 billion bailout deal. On Thursday. That Friday before Rosh Hashanah, markets all over the world crashed. It was a panic. The worst financial crisis since the Depression. Next week is an emergency session. We have to get this bill passed. Otherwise, the whole system is going to collapse. It's going to be Depression Part 2. And what was the response of the Congress? We're going to have to wait. Tuesday and Wednesday, there's nothing we can do on Tuesday and Wednesday. Because it's Rosh Hashanah. 
the Jewish people are busy praying. So that's it. There's nothing, there's nothing to discuss. 48 hours. The Jews are busy in shul, blowing shofar. And that's it. Not one day yom. Two days yom tif. That's it. There's nothing to discuss. <laughs> Emergency. A hundred year collapse, a global collapse like we've never seen in our lifetime. People lost their pension funds. People lost their life savings. The economy is about to collapse. How many Jews are there in America? And not only wasn't anyone upset, it was like the most natural thing in the world. And everyone was very, very respectful. Jewish people are blowing chauffeur. That's it. The whole world has to stop. 48 hours, there's nothing to discuss. The Congress is closed for business. Hey, think about it. Are we not living in the Messianic times? Isn't this there's such a respect today for the Jewish people? This is the time that Israel chooses to surrender. This is the time that we show such weakness. This is the time Israel would get up and speak with Jewish pride. Not just speak in Hebrew, but speak with Jewish content, with Jewish pride, and tell the truth. Stop lying to the Arabs. Stop causing them to steal land that never belonged to them and never will ever belong to them. There will never be a Palestinian state, not in God's lifetime. The dream of Israel is God's dream, and that dream is alive and well. Just like the Jewish people are the eternal people, Israel is the eternal land, and the Jewish people and the Torah. If Israel would just have a little backbone, a little pride, a little strength, the world would give us a standing ovation. So this is such a darkness. It's one thing if the Greeks exiled us, it's another thing if the Romans exiled us, if the Babylonians exiled us. For a Jew to exile himself... It never happened in the annals of human history. You can't find a single example of a single nation that exiled itself from its own land and negotiated its own capital. Such degradation, you don't find it. There's no nation on earth that ever lowered itself to such a level that it would be willing to negotiate its own capital and exile its own people and uproot their own people from their own homes even to discuss it. So this is such a darkness. It's a spiritually oppressive darkness. In a way, it's harder to take than a physical darkness. A physical darkness, it's easier to take. They hate us, and it's clear. But this darkness, this inner spiritual darkness, and yet, in this time, at this moment of exile, this moment of darkness, when we have the courage to be strong and we have the courage to do the right thing and we have the courage to express our Jewishness and to be proud of our Jewishness and to study Torah and to do mitzvot, we have the ability to transform darkness into light. The darkness itself turns into light. And that brings about the redemption. That will bring about the birth the redemption is compared to a birth. We bring a new child into this world. We bring a new reality into this world. This will give birth to the baby boy. This will give birth to the child. The redemption that will last forever. There will never be another exile. Once Mashiach comes, once the third temple is rebuilt, there will never ever be another exile. We'll never revert back into exile. This will be the permanent redemption. And the reason why it's going to be the permanent redemption is because we will have transformed, the darkness itself will have transformed into light. When you transform the darkness itself into light, then the whole world has become, has become light. We'll become a dwelling place for Hashem. Where Hashem says, I'm, I feel at home here. And godliness is completely manifest. 
and will be tangible. And not only for the Jewish people, for the whole entire world. The whole entire world will feel and sense godliness. Godliness will be palpable and tangible. But this comes as a result of our effort. Just like it's the woman who gives birth. It's her, when she arouses herself first, and she, she gives birth to the baby boy. So when the Jewish people, through their effort, when they reveal their God-given potential, their divine ability to be creative, to become partners with God in creation, by engaging in the darkness and transforming the darkness, where the darkness itself has become transformed into light, as we see today, if anyone would have told you 50 years ago, that Judaism would be flourishing today in every corner of the world. People who live in those, in those communities all across the world would have sworn to you that this is a spiritual desert. Yiddishkeit will never flourish here, will never take root here. This is not the shtetl. Yiddishkeit has no place here. Judaism can't flourish in this environment. And this atheistic, aggressively atheistic, coarse, materialistic society, Yiddishkeit will never take root. And look, the Rebbe sent his emissaries. 4,000 Chabad houses like this one, all over the world, have taken root and are flourishing literally in every city in the world, in every corner of the globe. There isn't a city in the world today where there are Jews where you don't have a flourishing Jewish community that started from nothing, something from nothing, that took a desert and transformed it into an oasis. Just like the Jewish people were in a desert, God gave the Torah in the desert to teach us that the purpose of the giving of the Torah was the mission of a Jew is to take this desert, a spiritual desert, a place where only snakes and scorpions could feel at home, a place which is the antithesis of anything that's godly and good and decent, a society that's so upside down, that doesn't know right from wrong. And yet, in this milieu, to create communities that are homegrown and that are flourishing in every sense of the word, 4,000 such communities literally in every corner of the world. This is the ultimate creative act. This is where you see what a Jew is all about. This is where you see that a Jew is married to God. This is where you see that at Mount Sinai, God empowered us to create to give birth, to create something new, to take the darkness itself and to transform it into light. So it's our effort that actually brings Mashiach. This reveals that the Jew is married to God, that this world is the holiest of all the worlds, that this world is where the essence of God is revealed, because only God has the power to create. Where did He give us that power? And where do we reveal that power? Only in darkness, and in the darkest darkness. Just like the first redemption when the Jews left Egypt. Right before they left Egypt. What was second to the last plague? Which plague was second to the last before the plague of the firstborn? Darkness. Choshech. And there were two levels of darkness. There was one level where it was completely dark, but you can walk around. And then it descended into the lower level of darkness where the darkness was so thick you can cut it with a knife. You couldn't even move. What does the Torah say? That at that moment, when the world reached such darkness, it was so thick, when the lies became so unbearable, the darkness became so thick, at that very moment, the Torah says, 
For the Jewish people, it was completely illuminated. The Jew has the ability to illuminate that darkness. To live in, in that environment and not only not be influenced by the darkness, but the Jew has the ability to take this world, this darkness, and completely transform it into light. And that's the last preparation before the ultimate redemption. So we are now at the threshold. Because in the last hundred years, the majority of the Jewish people moved, shifted to the Americas. And there's a saying, the Kabbalists say that Mount Sinai, the influence of Mount Sinai was only felt in the upper hemisphere. The Torah was given in the Middle East. In the Americas, there was no one living there then. So the Torah wasn't really felt, never really reached America. The saying was that even the streets in America were trafe. When people came to America, the golden the Medina, the golden land, the immigrants said that the streets in America were not kosher. Many tefillin, tefillin were thrown overboard on the, way, on the way here. Because people felt America's different. Can't be Jewish here. Judaism was good for the shtetl. Yes, true, it lasted for 30, 3,700 years. But it's for the shtetl. It's not for America. America's different. You can't be 100% Jewish here. Not compromise on Shabbat? Impossible. You have to work. You're an immigrant. You have to work on Shabbat. What do you mean you can't work? It's impossible. You'll never survive. Not to intermarry? Impossible. So the, the whole milieu, the environment, was, wasn't even a vessel for godliness. It was the, the antithesis. The Torah, the influence of the Torah did not reach him. And yet, where did the whole Baal movement come? The whole renaissance of Jewish life, where did it start? Right here, in New York. And from here it spread throughout the whole world. This revolution, this renaissance of Jewish life, like we've never seen in the annals of Jewish history. Where hundreds of thousands of young Jews, without the benefit of a Jewish experience, a single positive and meaningful Jewish experience, have rediscovered the Judaism with a vengeance. And you have Jewish life today flourishing all over the world, all over the United States and all over the world. So here you see the Jews' ability to take the darkness itself and to transform it into light. This is the ultimate creative act. This is the last preparation. Now we know that we've arrived at the darkness. The darkness is very thick. The disillusionment and the disappointment is very, very, very thick. It's tragic. But it's at this moment that you also see the brilliant light, the brilliant illumination, the ability of the Jew. In this environment, in this milieu, to shine and to sparkle and to stand strong and to stand united and stand with dignity and with Jewish dignity and Jewish pride. You don't have to compromise one iota of your Jewishness. You can be down to earth and you can be with it and you can be successful and you don't have to, you could be a passionate Jew, 100% Jewish. You don't have to compromise one iota. This is the last preparation. This will bring us to the ultimate redemption, just like in Egypt. That was the last preparation before the, the redemption from Egypt, the comprehensive and total redemption from Egypt. And so too, we are now in the threshold, the last moment before the Jewish dawn, when godliness will become fully revealed, when God's infinite light will be fully revealed. You'll, be able, you'll feel it tangible. Godliness will become tangible and palpable. 
you'll sense it, you'll experience it, you'll feel it. Not only us, not only 14 million Jews, 6 billion people, universally, globally. Every human being on earth will sense godliness and will become a moral and ethical and spiritual and godly being. We are living in very special times, very exciting times. On one hand, it's like the twilight zone. You have darkness like we've never seen before. Self-degradation like we've never seen before. Humiliation like we've never seen before. On the other hand, you have pride. You have brilliant flashes of illumination like we've never seen before. Intense light powerful light like we've never seen before and any moment we're going to experience Hashem will light the light will light the Shabbos candles and usher in the, the Shabbos the ultimate Shabbos Mashiach when this world will once again become a tranquil place godly place a pleasurable place a good place a genuine place a wholesome place authentic place where God's essence will be fully revealed that's why he says yes we are the ones who bring Mashiach we are the ones who make Mashiach happen through our efforts but specifically in the times of exile it's in the times of exile that you see the essence of the Jew fully emerges and fully surfaces you see what a Jew is capable of doing a Jew is capable of doing the impossible pulling off the impossible God gives us an impossible situation. <laughs> he creates such a darkness, such a challenge. And he says, okay, now I want you to take this world, this environment, this culture, and I want you to make it and transform it into a godly place. That's why God chose the Jewish people, to do the impossible. Otherwise, what do you need the Jewish people for? You know, you know the motto, miracles we do instantly. The impossible takes a little longer. So that's, that's the Jewish motto. <laughs> What God is asking us to do is to do the impossible. To take the lowest of the low, this broken, shattered world that's not even a vessel for godliness, and to transform it into something godly. Take this substance, this material, which seems to be the exact opposite of godliness, and to transform it into something godly. So yes, any time you study Torah, any time you do mitzvot, you accomplish this. But how much more so when you study Torah and do mitzvot in times of darkness, in moments of darkness? When it's difficult for you to study Torah and do mitzvot. And it takes self-sacrifice for you to do Torah and mitzvot. And that's, especially then, the Torah and mitzvot that you do under these, this environment. When a Jew for the first time in Jewish history has no ulterior motive to be Jewish. Up until 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you had, you had no choice. You lived in the shtetl. You were either Muslim or Christian or Jewish. You really had no choice. Today, for the first time in Jewish history, you have no ulterior motive to be Jewish. On the contrary. You have every ulterior motive not to be Jewish. You can easily assimilate. You can disappear. You can get lost. You can become a global citizen. No one will know. You can live in Manhattan. No one cares. Come to shul, you don't come to shul. No one will know the difference. You don't even, you don't, you don't even have to know your neighbors. You can live 20 years next to your neighbor and you don't even have to know. Make, no one knows, no one cares. You can live as you want. Live as you please. And yet, 
when a Jew in this environment makes the choice and makes the decision to be Jewish and to be proud of the Jewish and to act like a Jew and to study Torah and to do a mitzvah. This is so pure. This is so precious. This is so special. This gives birth. This will give birth to... This will evoke Hashem's response. Because after all, it takes two to tangle. You don't give birth, the woman doesn't give birth on her own. She needs the, the husband has to participate as well. So yes, the arousal comes from the woman. She's aroused first. But we have to evoke a response from Hashem. Ultimately, Mashiach, Hashem ultimately will bring Mashiach. And we're waiting for that moment. We're waiting for Hashem to respond. But how can Hashem not respond? How can God not respond? When you see this selflessness, you see the goodness that's been unleashed, you see these 4,000 communities that sprung up from nothing, you see these beautiful, flourishing Jewish communities and Jewish life and Jewish vitality. It's so alive, it's so beautiful, so powerful. How can Hashem not be inspired? And when Hashem will stir, and Hashem will respond, then we'll give, we'll give birth to this new baby, we'll give birth to the ultimate redemption, that the moment, there will be a moment in history when Mashiach will actually come. It's going to be a moment. Just like there was a moment in history when the Jewish people left Egypt. There was a moment in history. It was a historical moment. We know the date. We know the time. At midnight, when the clock struck midnight, in the year from creation, 2,448 in Egypt, that's when the Jewish people left Egypt. It's an historical moment. There will be a historical moment. There's going to be a moment in time when Mashiach actually comes. It hasn't happened yet. But there will be a moment when the temple will actually be, re- be rebuilt. When this world will become a peaceful place, a wholesome place, a godly place. It's imminent and it's up to us. You know the story, the, uh, there was once a leak in the, in the ceiling of the synagogue. The rabbi gets up and he says, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that there's enough money to fix the leak. The bad news is the money is in your pockets. <laughs> so the good news is that, it's up to, that we can do it. We can do this. We can make it happen. There's no mystery. We can make it happen. If every Jew is living in the Upper East Side the 70,000 Jews living in the Upper East Side, every one of us did one more mitzvah than we did yesterday. If every Jew in the world, from the greatest to the smallest, did one extra mitzvah, took a baby step, that's all it takes, it would revolutionize human consciousness, Mashiach would be here in one split second. It's so easy, it's so doable, it's so tangible. That's the good news. (laughs) And it's up to us. It's really in our hands. So it's not just we're praying for Mashiach and we sit passively and we say, okay, God, you bring Mashiach and I'll go to sleep. Mashiach is an activist program. You want to bring Mashiach? It's up to you. You make it happen. Roll up your sleeves. Push yourself. Go that extra mile. Do that extra mitzvah. Come to that extra Torah class. Study a little more. Say an extra psalm. Give an extra penny to tzedakah. Give an extra smile even when you're tired and you're exhausted and you ran out of smiles. Push yourself a little. Have a positive attitude. Speak positively. Baby steps. But if every one of us took one baby step forward, 
Today, now, Mashiach would be here in one second. It, it's as simple as that. The real truth, the great things in life are quite simple. And doable. And reachable. And we are on the threshold. It is imminent. One way or the other, it's imminent. But we can fast forward it and hasten it and make it an immediate reality. Okay, you want to read? On top of page 484. So by performing the mitzvah, <laughs> man draws the revelation of the blessed eye and self light from above downwards. To be clothed in the physicality of this world, i.e. in an object which had heretofore been under the dominion of Klippa at Noga and had received its vitality from this Klippa. Namely, all pure permissible objects with which the act of the mitzvah is performed. By performing the mitzvah, man draws the eye self light upon the object with which it is performed. So he's explaining how the Torah and mitzvah that we do, that this is an activist program. By us studying Torah and doing mitzvah, we are actually transforming the world. We're actually changing the world into a dwelling place for God, for godliness. Because the mitzvot are all physical. To fulfill the mitzvah, you have to take a physical object. You have to take a leather hide of an animal. You have to put the tefillin on. You have to take a match and a candle, <coughs> wax, light the Shabbat candle. You have to take money, give it to charity, to tzedakah. All of these mitzvot are physical. So when you take a physical object, the physical object is the material is from this world, which is not godly. It's earthy. It's coarse. It's material. But when you do a mitzvah with it, you transform the material into something godly. So you're taking a portion of this world and you're drawing down God's infinite light into this world. You're revealing God's infinite light into this world. Yeah, the Rebbe now illustrates his phrase pure permissible objects with which the act of the mitzvah is performed. Citing mm-hmm. as examples one object from each of the three categories animal life, vegetative, and inanimate life. For example, the parchment of the tefillin, mezuzah, and sefer Torah, which must be made of the skins of permissible kosher animals. As our sages state, for the work of heaven, i.e. mitzvah objects, only that which is pure and permissible to eat may be used. So the parchment that you use to write a Torah scroll has to be from a kosher animal. You can't take parchment from a pig, God forbid, and write a Torah scroll with it. It's not a kosher Torah school. You have to take parchment from a kosher animal. It doesn't necessarily have to be slaughtered properly. You don't have to take it from animals that were slaughtered properly and are kosher. You check them and there's no defects. It's a very special thing. Um, When the previous Rebbe uh, commissioned in the 1940s, they should write a Torah to greet, that the Jewish people should write a Torah to greet Mashiach. So it took a very long time to write. It wasn't completed till 1970 because they, they only used parchment from an animal. Not only the animal was kosher, but the, it was slaughtered properly and they checked that, that there was no defect, the animal was healthy. So it was, it was a very rare, rare thing. But most Torahs, you take it in the skin of a kosher animal as long as the animal is kosher. Because what does it mean when you say an animal is kosher? When something is kosher, what it, all it means is that it has the potential to be elevated. It has the potential, when you do a mitzvah with it, it has the potential to be elevated. Something that's not kosher, a pig, for example, you can't elevate it. The godly spark is trapped. You can't elevate it. There's nothing you can do with it. You can't kosher a, a chazer. You can't kosher a pig. 
you can salt it, or you can slaughter it. You can't kosher a pig. It's not kosher. You can't take something that's not kosher and make it kosher. It's not subjective. It's, a, it's objective. It's a fact. Even if you meant well, but I meant well. It doesn't matter what you mean. It, it's a poison. It's something that you have to avoid. Now, it's not the animals. When you use, when you use the animal... The animal itself is, 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 it is what it is. But when you take the animal and you use it inappropriately, then you're, you're doing something wrong. The animal itself is not kosher. It can't be elevated. You don't have the ability to elevate the animal. When something is kosher, it means you have the ability to elevate it. If you take the parchment and use it for a mitzvah, use it for a holy object, then the parchment itself becomes holy. Okay, continue. Parchment derived from such animals is, however, under the dominion of Klippanoga until one uses it for tefillin, etc., when the mitzvah draws upon the parchment the revelation of Ein Sof life. Okay. Similarly, an etrog which is not orla, the forbidden fruit of trees' first three harvests, or money given to charity that has not been acquired through theft and their like, i.e., other physical objects used in performing a mitzvah, all of which were previously in the realm of Klippanoga, and as the Alter Rebbe will conclude presently, are now merged into the divine will by serving the purpose of a mitzvah. So it's very nice if a person steals money in business. His whole business is dishonest. And he's very generous and philanthropic and takes this money and gives money to the yeshiva, and gives money to the school and wants to be honored at the dinner because he gave money to the yeshiva. But how did you earn this money? If the money is stolen, God says, no, thank you. It's very nice, but you can't do a mitzvah with sinful money. You can't kosher. This money is like a pig. You can't kosher it. You can't cheat and steal and lie in business and then try to whitewash it or to laundry the money, launder the money and say, well, I'm giving money to yeshiva. I'm giving money to a holy cause. The means and the end does not justify the means. And this money is not kosher and cannot be elevated. And God, is, God says, I don't want it. I'm not interested. This money is not kosher money. Don't do, don't do any tzedakah with this money. Don't give charity with this money. This money is no good money. It's not kosher money. It's poison. It's toxic. So he uses an example. He uses an example from the animal life. God bless you. He uses an uh, example from animal life. If you use a hide from a non-kosher animal, from a pig, or if you use fruits... Fruits, how could fruits not be kosher? <coughs> we know that all fruits are kosher, right? Outside the land. But no, there are fruits that are not kosher. For example, arla uses the example. The fruit from the first three years, you're not allowed to eat from the fruit the first three years of the tree. It's only starting with the fourth year that you're allowed to eat from the fruit. In Israel, when you buy a fruit, you need a, a hechsher, you need a... <laughs> A rabbinic supervision to make sure the fruit is kosher because in Israel there's laws of tithing and there's, you know, we, they, they, we don't have all these laws outside of Israel. But in the Holy Land of Israel you have all these laws. So you have, he's give, giving an example of a possibility where the first three years the fruit is not kosher. And you can't eat from this fruit. You can't make a blessing on the fruit. Let's say you take an esrog, a beautiful esrog, on Sukkot, the nicest esrog in the, in the synagogue. It's one problem. It's from the first three years. 
not only don't you have a mitzvah, you haven't you have a sin. You haven't done the mitzvah. You haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. You can't take something that's forbidden and do a mitzvah with it. You can't kosher it. Okay, continue. In reference to his earlier stipulation that an etrog not be orla and that charity be honestly acquired, the Alter Rebbe notes, for orla is of the three completely unclean kripot that can never ascend into holiness. As is written in Eitz Chaim, thus fruit which is orla, deriving its vitality from these kripot, cannot be elevated by having a mitzvah performed with it. And that's why you wait three years. The three years represent the three klipot, the three different gradations of klipa, which is the antithesis of godliness, the antithesis of holiness. Everything in this world has a godly spark in order for it to exist, but it's covered up. And the cover-up is a thick shell that doesn't allow the, um, it doesn't allow the, inner, the inner fruit to emerge and to surface. The difference between the, the fourth year, which represents the klipat noga, which is the fourth klipa, that noga means there's some light, there's some potential for holiness. It has the potential to be elevated. If you take this object, the fruit from the fourth year, or you take a leather hide from a kosher animal, or you take kosher money that was earned honestly and kosher in a kosher way, and then you give charity with it, then you've taken something and you've transformed it into a mitzvah, into, into something holy. So it has the ability to be elevated because the klipa, the shell, has allowed some light to penetrate. Because the shell is there to protect the fruit. So in the klipa noga, the shell is subservient to the fruit. The shell protects the fruit and is there for the fruit. So you can utilize it in order for the fruit, for the inner, for, the, for, for something godly. The three klipot, the three shells, which the shells are so, are so thick, like the shell of a nut, of a peanut, it's so thick you can't see through it, it's opaque. The shell, you can confuse the shell without even knowing that there's a fruit inside. It's when this materialistic world becomes an end in itself, where external material becomes an end in itself. And you completely forget about the inner, the fruit. You forget about the godliness. You forget about the inner purpose. When money, fame, beauty, all of that just becomes an end in itself without any, no inner content, no inner point, no inner connection, no higher connection, it just becomes an end in itself. That's the three klipot that completely cover up on the inner. And they, they, they obstruct and they're opaque and don't allow the inner godly spark to emerge into surface. So they become the opposite of holiness. And they're irredeemable. You can't elevate it. You can't, but there's no Robin Hoods in Judaism. I'll steal from the rich and I'll give to the poor. I'll transfer from the rich and give to the poor. It sounds noble. Robin Hood. A moral crusader. There are no Robin Hoods in Judaism. Stealing is stealing. <laughs> the Torah respects private property. Yes, you can encourage the rich person to give charity. You can inspire him, you can encourage him, but you can't reach into his pocket and steal his money and say, I'm going to decide for you and I'm going to force you and I'm going to take you and I'm going to... There's no Robin Hoods in Judaism. You can't steal money and then do good things with it. But my intention is noble. I feel for the poor. I'm passionate. While this wealthy person is callous, selfish, greedy. No. Torah says this money is poison, is toxic. This money is theft. 
take your money and go home. It's, it doesn't belong to you. But your noble feelings do not change the objective reality. I'm taking this money, I'm doing a mitzvah. No. I'm taking this esrog from the first three years and I'm doing a mitzvah with it. I'm making an esrog. I'm going to shake. I'm going to shake. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to shake the lulav and the esrog. Torah says, you know, it's a sin. It's not a mitzvah. You can't take something that's prohibited. You can't take a relationship and say, but, but we love each other. A prohibited relationship is prohibited. You can't kosher a pig. If something is wrong, it's wrong. It's objectively wrong. It doesn't matter what you feel subjectively. But we love and it's so beautiful. It's wrong. You can kosher the pig and you can salt the pig and you can dress it like a, as if it's kosher. It doesn't make it kosher. It's an objective reality. You can't take this portion of the world that Torah says is prohibited and you can't transform it into something holy or sacred. The way to deal with it is by rejecting it. Don't steal. Don't have this relation. That's the way you make it holy. That's the way you make yourself holy. Don't use this money. Don't use this essence. By rejecting it, by recognizing this as poison, as toxic, and staying away from it, that, by being strong and doing the right thing, that's how you elevate it. That's how you become elevated. Okay, continue. Similarly. Similarly, any mitzvah whose performance involved a transgression, God forbid, since the sinful act receives its vitality from the three completely unclean klipot, the resulting mitzvah cannot elevate it. So you can't, you, your intentions could be noble, but you can't do a mitzvah through a sin. You know, I love my fellow Jew. I love. You know what? So I'll do something that's halachically wrong. I'm saving his life. Without me, who knows where he would be? He'll be in a bar, he'll be, who knows where he'll be? And now I'm saving his life. So I'm violating the Jewish law. So, but you have to look at the bigger picture. There's no such thing. Don't do any mitzvah, a mitzvah that comes through sin. Nothing good will come out of it. But I'm so loving. My heart is so big. I love this person. I love him to death. I'll do anything. So what? So I'll compromise on the right thing. Why do I have to live up to such high standards? And you can rationalize. I'm rescuing this person's life. The, me- the ends justify the means. There's no such thing. Ends do not justify the means. A mitzvah that comes through a sin, nothing good will come out of it. It's not a mitzvah. You're not, you're not doing anyone any favors. You're not doing God any favors. You're not doing the person any favors. And you're surely not doing yourself any favors. It doesn't work. It sounds nice. And you make, you may, it may make you feel good. But it's not the right way to go. Not only the ends have to be right, the means how we get there also have to be kosher. The ends do not justify them. It involves doing something that's not kosher. Nothing good will come out of it. Nothing. Not for you, not for anyone else. It's a very important lesson in life. Because many people lose their way because they rationalize. Yeah, but yes, the means are not so kosher. But the ends are beautiful. Many people have lost their souls thinking this way. It's a very, very dangerous path. The Torah says it doesn't work. Not only the ends have to be kosher, but the means how we get there also have to be kosher. And then and only then could you do something good, could you do something holy, could you elevate the experience and transform it into a mitzvah. Okay? 
When performed, however, with pure and permissible objects, the mitzvah elevates those objects from klipat noga to holiness to be united with the Ein Sof light, as the Alter Rebbe continues. Now that one fulfills God's commandment and will with these objects, the vitality within them ascends and is dissolved and absorbed into the blessed Ein Sof light, which is his will that is clothed in the mitzvah, the divine will that each mitzvah represents. When you do a mitzvah, since you're fulfilling God's will, so you become the tool through which we implement God's will. And therefore, this object becomes absorbed within God, because God and His will are one. So when this mitzvah becomes the object through which you fulfill God's will, you become connected with God. This becomes an extension, an expression of God, completely unified with God. So you've taken this material object, this physical material object, you've taken this money, this hard-earned money that you've earned honestly, by giving it to tzedakah, this money and the energy that you put into this money becomes godly and unified with God. You've taken this energy that gives vitality to this fruit and you've unified this fruit with God. It becomes a, a holy object. You've taken this leather hide from the animal and you wrote the Torah with it and the Torah itself becomes holy. It's sacred. It's not a symbol. The, the scroll itself is holy. You have to treat it respectfully. You're not allowed to bring it into certain places. You've brought down godliness. The object itself becomes a part of God. And it becomes an, a, eternally holy. The Torah remains holy forever. Just like God is eternal. You've transformed this physical object, this physical object, which previously was disconnected from God. It was part of the world of the klipa, of the shell. Even the klipa noga, even the shell that's kosher. All kosher means it has the potential to be elevated. But before you do a mitzvah with it, it's just belongs to this world. It's part of this materialistic world. It's disconnected. So you've taken this leather hide of the animal that's disconnected, and now you've transformed it into a holy object. It's connected. It's one with God. You've drawn down God's infinite light into this world. You've transformed the material into something godly, into something spiritual. Okay, continue. Of the countenance, whatever to hide his light, preventing the object from being absorbed in this light. As stated earlier, wherever the Ein Self light stands revealed, there is no separation from God. Everything is united with his light. In this case, the object with which the mitzvah, representing revelation of the will and light of the Ein Sof, is performed. So even though it's material, the material you're working with is, is coarse, material, tangible which seems to be so far from godliness. You know, in the Torah, whenever the Torah discusses, speaks of God, even metaphorically, it's, the Torah speaks of God's eyes, God sees. It speaks of God's ear, God hears, God's, God smells, so to speak. Of course, it's all metaphorically. God is not a human. God doesn't see. In the physical sense, He doesn't have eyes, He doesn't have ears, and doesn't have a nose. But we mean in the metaphorical sense. Just like we see and we connect and we know what we see and we hear. So we, meet the, we, so we speak of God in human terms, in human terminology. We speak metaphorically that God sees and hears. But even by way of analogy, the Torah doesn't say that God touches. Because the sense of touch is the, the antithesis of godliness, spirituality. It's, it's so far from anything spiritual. Something that's tangible, material, you can touch with your finger. 
You know, a baby has to touch something. Unless it touches, it doesn't exist. You know, it has to touch it. Touch is so far from anything abstract, from anything spiritual, from anything godly. So even metaphorically, you can't use a sense of touch as a metaphor for God. And yet, when you do a mitzvah with something tangible, by physically doing the mitzvah, that tangible object, the leather hide of the animal you can touch, becomes a, a, an expression of godliness, becomes part of God, becomes a mitzvah, becomes holy, becomes an expression of God. And there's no obstruction. There's nothing in the way. Because since this is the tool through which you're implementing God's will, it becomes part of God's will. And therefore it becomes an expression of God. So the mitzvah, in a way, like God's sense of touch. When you do a mitzvah, you are touching God and God is touching. Because the mitzvah is holy. The mitzvah is, is, is God's will. And the energy and the vitality in the mitzvah become one with God, inseparable with God, become connected with God. But it's when a Jew does a mitzvah. A Jew is empowered to do a mitzvah. When a Jew puts on tefillin, when you shake the lulav in the esr, when you do a mitzvah, you have the power to take this material object and to transform it into a sacred object. You have the power to transform this material to something spiritual, to something God. At Mount Sinai, God empowered us, each and every one of us. We have the ability to change the world, to transform the world by taking all these physical objects that have the potential to be elevated, that are kosher. And by taking these objects and doing a mitzvah with them, we are taking this portion of the world, this object, and transforming it from something material, something disconnected, into something godly, into something holy. So we're drawing down God's infinite light into this world. We're changing the world. We are bringing God into this world, God's essence into this world. We are making this world a dwelling place for God. So we make it happen. It's an activist program. Since the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Torah is the way, these are the way, this is the, the, how we bring God into this world. Every time we do a mitzvah, we're taking another portion of this world, this material, earthy, physical, crusty world, and we're taking it and transforming it into something holy and godly. And as he's going to say later, all these mitzvot add up. We've been doing this for 3,300 years. So all these mitzvot add up. Another portion, our ancestors lived in different parts of the world. So every, all of them have taken a different portion of the world, a different portion of this crusty material world, and transformed it into something godly, into something holy. So slowly but surely, now we have all our bases covered. We're in the ninth inning, all the bases are covered. We're literally in every corner of the world. So we've taken every portion of this world and transformed it into something holy, into something godly. Drawn down God's infinite essence into this world. So that when Mashiach will come, Mashiach will only reveal what's already been done. The work, we are doing the work now. So it's not that Mashiach is a reward. You know, if you behave, like you tell a child, you behave well, I'll give you a reward. Or, or you tell a worker in the office, you'll work well, I'll give you a bonus. Mashiach is not a bonus. Mashiach is not a separate from what we're doing. Mashiach is what we are going to what we are accomplishing now. Mashiach will reveal what we've accomplished over the last 3,800 years. Because right now, every time we do a mitzvah, we're bringing godliness into this world. But right now, we don't see it. We don't feel it. The world doesn't feel godly. You walk down Park Avenue, you don't feel godliness. Not yet. 
It's not palpable. It's not tangible. Mashiach will come. Mashiach will reveal everything that we've accomplished over the last 3,800 years. Every bit of godliness that we drew down into this world. Every time we did a mitzvah. All the six, any, all of the 613 mitzvahs. Any time our ancestors and every Jew around the world for thousands of years. Every time we, we did a mitzvah and we're doing a mitzvah, we're taking another portion of this world and transforming it into, into godliness. Making this world a dwelling place for God. And when the last Jew will do that last mitzvah, will create that critical mass, and in one split second, in one instant, will reveal everything we've accomplished over the last 3,800 years. As Jackie Mason says. He was a comedian for 40 years, and then he became an overnight success. <laughs> yes, Mashiach will happen overnight, in one split second. But we've only been working on this for 3,800 years. This is a project. This is the Jewish project. Mashiach is the Jewish project. This is what the Jewish people are all about. This is what life is all about. This is what existence is all about. This is what creation is all about. This is the whole point. This is the whole purpose. It's not just the detail. This is what we've been working for for the last 3,800 years. We don't have any other agendas. We have one agenda. Since Sinai, the Jewish people have one single agenda. Everything that happened to us, everything that's happening to us, everything that's happening in the world, everything that we're doing is all towards one agenda, one goal. And that is to bring God into this world. To make this world a place where God's infinite light is fully revealed. It's palpable, it's tangible. This world is a garden of Eden once again. This world is a beautiful place, a wholesome place, a light, a, an illuminated place. God did not desire the darkness, that the darkness should remain darkness. He desired that the darkness should be transformed into light. This dense darkness should be transformed into brilliant illumination through our effort, through our heroic sacrifice, through our effort, through our tears, through our dedication, through our hope, our faith, our trust, our efforts, our mitzvot, our Torah, our sweat, our toil. And we've been laboring and toiling at this for 3,800 years. And now, after 3,800 years, finally, we're at the threshold. Now we're just waiting for that last Jew to do that last mitzvah. Maybe it's you, maybe it's I. To push themselves, do that last mitzvah to create that critical mass. When that overnight success, that, that, that moment, when suddenly the lights will go on, and suddenly we'll see everything that we've accomplished over the last 30 years. We'll see and feel all the godliness that we've drawn down. Every time you study Torah, every time you pray, every time you do a mitzvah, every time you give a penny to tzedakah, you're bringing down godliness. If we were to realize what we're doing, we would be dancing from joy. We don't feel, we don't sense. So we take it on faith. We know that every time we're doing a mitzvah, something monumental is happening. Something very real is happening. Mitzvahs are not rituals or customs. Something very real, very monumental that affects the whole entire world, existence itself, the whole universe. Every time any one of us does any mitzvah, we're taking a physical object and transforming it into something godly, into something sacred. We're drawing down God's infinite light into this world. We don't feel it. We don't sense it. Those tzaddikim, the holy people, the one or two in every generation, the rabbis of the world, they sense it. They sense Mashiach now because they sense, when they do a mitzvah, they sense the godliness. That's why when they do a mitzvah, you watch them, their souls are on fire. They're not just doing a mitzvah. You see, it's not just a ritual or custom. Their souls on fire. When they light the Hanukkah menorah, they are, they are being lit. You don't know who's on fire. The candle's on fire or the tzaddik is on fire. His soul is on fire. 
His whole being is on fire. When he prays, his whole being is praying. When he studies Torah, his whole being is studying Torah. His whole mind, his whole effort is totally concentrated and focused. Because he senses the godliness. He senses the effect. He realizes what you're doing. We don't sense. But the truth is that every time we do a mitzvah, any one of us, we're drawing down godliness. How much more so in our day and age when we do a mitzvah in the year 2008 in this darkness, right before this twilight moment, right before the redemption, this thick darkness, spiritually oppressive darkness, the preciousness of a mitzvah that we do today is indescribable. We're literally drawing down the deepest levels of godliness, the very essence of godliness. God's infinite essence is being drawn down. The wholeness within the shattered, within the fragmentation, we're revealing the wholeness and the core and essence of God. And any moment, this will lead to the revelation when all of this, everything we've accomplished, will be completely, fully revealed. And then we'll feel godliness. In one split second, the light will go on. We'll sense godliness. It'll be palpable. It'll be tangible. And as a result... When that moment happened, just like there was a moment when the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt and they physically left Egypt. So when that moment happens, we will physically all move to Israel. We will physically see the rebuilding of the third temple. And we will physically see this world at peace, the Middle East at peace, the world at peace, where this world will become a Garden of Eden, a peaceful place, a wholesome place, a genuine place, a kind place, a loving place, a good place. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.